0: Thanks guys for uh, leading us in worship and helping us to um, just come before God and worship him and bring him the praise and glory that he deserves. An extra special welcome to you again if you're a visitor, great to have you with us this morning. Um, Folks from all over the world this morning, Russia, America, Brazil, Cyprus, UK, fantastic, it's great isn't it? Come together to worship Jesus, so a little taste of the future in heaven as we come together to worship him from nations all over the world together. On your seat, there should be a bulletin, and on the other side of that is the outline of the message that we're looking at together today, and everything is going to be up on the screen, and the verses are there for you, so if you find that helpful, it's there for you to use, if not, that's fine, no problems. Timothy was a man who uh, was in the Bible, he surrendered his life to Jesus and became a Christian when he heard a man called Paul, who was an apostle, one of the early leaders of the church. And as Paul preached about Jesus, Timothy heard him preach, and he accepted the good news that he heard about Jesus, and he became a Christian. And that was probably about 48 AD. Paul was one of the apostles, one of these key early leaders in the early church, and he had that special authority from God, which came with being an apostle. And as Timothy became a Christian, Paul took Timothy under his wing, and he became like a kind of right-hand man, a co-worker with Paul together as they try to tell others about Jesus and spread the good news. And he helped teach those who responded to that message and to teach them and train them so that they too could become followers and and dedicated followers of the Lord Jesus. And about 12 years or so after becoming a Christian, Paul gave Timothy the task of overseeing the church or or, or the churches in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city which is in what is now uh, modern day Turkey. And Paul gave Timothy this task of overseeing these churches. And so here was Timothy, a young man who was really, really aware of his own limitations, his own frailties and uh, fragilities. And he was given this really key leadership role in a church or or churches in Ephesus there uh, in in Western Turkey. And he was given this this key role, this leadership role, and it had the potential really to overwhelm him. It was a really massive role for Timothy. And so Paul, the one whose preaching, had led Timothy to trust in Jesus, his spiritual father, the one who'd given him this key role in Ephesus. He wrote to Timothy to encourage him and to instruct him in this role. And you can imagine Timothy getting this letter and being excited to have a communication from his spiritual father, being excited, being encouraged, and receiving this letter, and and just getting great help and practical instruction. And to be reminded that he wasn't on his own. It was a big task he had, but to know that he wasn't on his own, that there were others standing with him, and that, of course, God was in him, and the Holy Spirit was with him. And to be reminded, too, as he received this letter, about what was really important, what to focus on in his work. And what to look out for in his personal life and in the life of the church there in Ephesus. And so the letter that Paul wrote has become known as First Timothy. There were two letters, they're in the New Testament. And Paul wrote this first letter to Timothy. And this letter was primarily to Timothy, but Paul also intended that Timothy would make that letter available to the church there in Ephesus and to other Christians as well. And of course it was intended that it would be preserved in the Bible and so it's now In our Bible today, uh, 2,000 years later. And it's particularly useful and helpful to read if you're a church leader, especially if you are a a young church leader like Timothy was. But actually, it's got lots to say to all of us. There's lots that we can learn. Every single one of us, if we've got a heart to hear from God, can learn a whole load about what church is about and uh, what it means to follow Jesus and to live for him as we read through it. And we're about halfway through this letter from Paul to Timothy. We've reached chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 14 to 16. And Paul has been giving Timothy all sorts of instructions about how to lead a church, how to guard his own life, but also how to um, make sure that the churches that were, in God, that were entrusted to him, make sure that they function properly, they function in a biblical way, in the way that God wanted them to. And he gets halfway through this letter, and then he stops, and he just takes a few moments again to remind Timothy what this is all about. He's been kind of writing away and then he just pauses and he stops and he says, Look, this is why I'm writing to you. I'm reminding you again what this is all about, how important this really is. He takes a short pause. He reminds Timothy what the church is, he reminds Timothy what it exists for, how we can belong to the church and how we should behave if we belong to it. And then having reminded Timothy of these really important points, he then carries on, which we're going to look at in future weeks. He carries on giving uh, Timothy detailed instructions for how a church should function and how it should run and uh, how Timothy should uh, play that role of leadership in those churches. So we're going to read this little pause, this little break in pause, letter to Timothy. If you've got a Bible with you and you want to turn with me, that's fine. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, we're going to read verses 14 to 16. If you just want to listen, that's fine. That's That's no problem. So, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're reading from verses 14 to the end of 16, the end of the chapter. So, Paul says this, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness, or the mystery from which godliness springs, is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. So Paul had entrusted Timothy with this task of overseeing and leading this church or or group of churches in Ephesus. And Paul obviously felt at this point in his letter that it was important just to pause and to stop and remind Timothy again what this was really all about, just what it was he was doing. Timothy wasn't running a club. It wasn't some kind of human institution or organization. What Timothy was tasked with leading was the church of the living God. That's That's the expression that Paul uses. He says, you're leading the church of the living God. This isn't a working men's club. It's not a sports club. It's not a hobby club. This is the church of the living God. The churches that Timothy was overseeing were in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a city that was full of idol worship, and especially the worship of Artemis. And the people believed that Artemis was this mythical daughter of Zeus and, and Leto and the twin sister of Apollo, all of which were characters in Greek mythology. And Artemis was this many-breasted virgin fertility goddess. And this was what pretty much everybody in Ephesus and that surrounding area, they worshipped her. And they worshipped her in this massive temple. That's the ruins or what's left of it on the left there, but that's what it would have looked like. It's enormous. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. And this is where people worshipped. And as Paul writes to Timothy, he wants to remind him and the Christians at Ephesus who would have then read this letter that they weren't part of just some kind of religious system that was worshipping a lump of stone that somebody had carved in a a temple somewhere. They were part of something unique, something different, something special, something fantastic. They were part of the church of the living God. Not of an idol, not of something that was human created, a, a kind of human creation. They were the church of the living God. The living God, the one true God, the God who reveals himself to us through creation, but then primarily in the Bible and ultimately in the person of Jesus. They were part of the church of the living God. And as he says in verse 15, it's the living God, the one true God. Many of the Christians in Ephesus, probably nearly all of them, would at one time have their religious life would have been, and their whole life would have been around the focus of the worship of Artemis, a lump of stone. But now they had encountered the truth about Jesus, they would responded to that, and they'd become worshippers of the living God. And they'd become part of this church of the living God. Timothy was a leader of this church of the living God. And Paul says he's writing to Timothy with these instructions so that people would know how to conduct themselves in the church of the living God. So what is the church of the living of the living God. Well, the word church is translated from the Greek word ecclesia, which literally means assembly or gathering of people. And in the Bible, really, what it means is God's gathered people. That's what it means, God's gathered people. Write that on your outline. Church equals ecclesia, which literally means an assembly or a gathering. It means God's gathered people. Church is not a building. This is not a church. This is just a building. Now, we sometimes refer to it as the church building or we're going down to church. That's fine. That's how it tends to get used in the English language. But the word church is not referring to a building. A church in the Bible is the gathered people of God. And they can gather. They can be the church in a field, in a house, in a building, wherever. The building isn't holy. The building is important. They're useful, but... It's where the people gather, it's the people gathered that that is the important thing. And the gathered people of God, wherever they assemble in his name to worship him, they are the church, they are the gathered people of God. It refers to God's people all over the world, and there are people this morning here who are part of that worldwide church from Brazil, from America, from Russia, from the UK, that is a, that is a kind of a little picture of the worldwide church, God's gathered people internationally. But it also refers to God's gathered people in a locality. We are the, the local gathered people of God here this morning in this church, Regent Chapel, Regent Christian Fellowship. Here at Regent, we are a, a local church, the people of God gathered this morning to worship him, God's gathered people. And we're part of that worldwide church too, that worldwide church gathering. And it's fantastic, isn't it, that as people you know, going around the world, perhaps moving to this area, or on holiday in this area, that we can come and instantly connect and, and, and be in touch with and be part of a local family of Christians. It's fantastic. Some of our best friends all over the world are people, when we've been on holiday, when we've gone to a local church, and we've connected, and they've said, come back for lunch, and they've been friends, then they've stayed on for, for, you know, for the rest of our lives. And that's fantastic, being part of God's family, being part of the ecclesia, God's gathered people, whether that's locally or internationally. And Paul also describes the church here as God's household. And again, he's not referring to a house, he's not referring to a building. He's using a term that in his day referred to all the people that lived in a family dwelling. There'd be the head of the household, there'd be uh, perhaps his wife, some children, some extended family members, there'd be slaves, there'd be free slaves. And often then there was an overseer whose job it was, he was employed by the head of the household to look after, to oversee the affairs of his household. And using this picture... The idea is that Jesus is the head of the household. That's the kind of picture that Paul's using. And we, if we've trusted in Jesus, are those that are living under his spiritual roof, as it were. We're all different kinds of people from different races, different languages, different ethnic backgrounds, different social backgrounds, different educations, all kinds of different families and backgrounds. But we've come together under this household, part of this uh, household of God. All different kinds of people, all part of his family. And and part of the point of this picture is to teach us that as a local church, we should be in fact made up of all different kinds of people. Different backgrounds, ages, races, but united by Jesus. That's fantastic, isn't it? And the Bible takes that word overseer and applies that to the role of an elder. In fact, the word elder and overseer are used interchangeably. It's it's, it's the same role. And Paul says the, the elders, the overseers, are there, if you like, working on behalf of Jesus, using this picture of the household and the head of the household to make sure that the household, God's household, functions properly and well. So, church isn't a building, there's nothing special about this building anyone who's got an interest in architecture can see that. Uh, It's hardly an architectural gem. uh, Not a great picture of late 1950s British architecture. Nothing special about this building. This church is not a human organization. It's not a club. We are the gathered people of the living God. And it's not that we make it special, it's that God makes it special because we gather to him. We're not gathered, gathering to a concept or an idol or a person. You're not gathering to me or the elders. We're gathering to the living God. That's what makes it special. It's not the, the people. It's God who makes it special. So we're not gathered to a human concept. We're not gathered to a worthwhile cause. We're not gathered around a sport or a hobby. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But we're not worshipping something we've created. We're gathered to the living God. We're a holy people, the Bible says, gathered to a holy living God. Not holy because we live good lives, but holy because by trusting in Jesus, God makes us holy and views us as being as holy as Jesus. So this is a holy gathering. I wonder if you're conscious of that this morning, as you rolled out of bed and you know, the alarm went and maybe your parents were shouting at you, if that was kind of our household, come on, let's go, or you're just kind of rushing to get down here or just ambling, you know, whatever it might be, as you came this morning, were you conscious that you were coming to the household, not the building, but the household of the living God, the church of the living God? Was that something you were conscious of this morning? Or was it just a kind of rolling out of bed and you know it's just what I do on a Sunday Was that that sense, I'm coming to holy ground, not this physical ground, but spiritually. This is a holy holy moment, a holy thing, where God's people gather together around the living God. It's not just what we do on Sundays, it's not just the club. This is the church, the household of the living God. Be conscious that you're joining with others who are worshipping the living God. And as we do this, as we gather, God is here. The, The Lord Jesus promises to be with us when we gather in his name. And if you're conscious of that now, conscious of that this morning as you came. And that's not just true on Sunday mornings from 11 o'clock till 12.30 here on Regent. That is true wherever we are. If we are God's gathered people, even when we're not gathered, we are still his gathered people. We are still the church and he is with us and we are still his people. It's true on Sunday evenings as we meet tonight to pray together. I hope you'll be here tonight to pray coming together to pray as God's people on home groups in in, in the week or on different church gatherings that we have. We're the gathered people of the living God. And Paul reminds Timothy that not only is a church the household of the living God, and not only is it God's gathered people, but that as the church, we have a unique role in history. Paul says this in verse 15, that the church of the living God is the foundation and pillar of the truth. The church of the living God is the foundation and pillar of the truth. The church has been given the task of being the foundation and the pillar of the truth. Not just some truth, but the truth. One of the roles of the church, not the only role, but one of the roles of the church, God's people, is to protect and to promote the truth. The church, the believing gathered people of God, is the guardian and the communicator of the truth. So the church is God's household, God's gathered people. One of our tasks is this, to guard, protect, and to spread the truth. Write that on your outline. One of our tasks, not the only task by any means, but one of our roles, as we learn from this passage here, as God's people, as God's household, as God's gathered church, his ecclesia, his assembly, is to guard, to protect, and spread the truth. We're going to look at what the truth is in a moment, but it's important to realize that God's truth, because it's God's truth, as revealed in the Bible, always has been and always will be under attack. Satan is the deceiver. Satan is real. He is the deceiver. That's what his name means. And Satan will do everything he can to undermine the truth or attack the truth. He is a liar. He's been a liar since the beginning, Jesus said. He's a deceiver, and he will do whatever he can, well, sometimes very subtly from within church, from false teaching, sometimes very uh, overtly, externally, from all sorts of different ways. Satan will come in all sorts of different ways to try and undermine the truth of the Bible. And so it's vitally important that we know what the truth is. And it's so important that we take this role collectively, not just the elders, but actually all of us together, if we're part of this gathered people of God this morning, that we take that role really seriously. Our role is to protect and to guard and to spread that truth. Don't leave it to others. Take it seriously, that we know the truth, we know what the truth is, and therefore we can spot errors and we can realize when deception is afoot. People's eternal destinies rely on their understanding of the truth and what they do in response to that truth. It really is that important. Guarding, protecting, and promoting the truth won't make us popular as followers of Jesus. Quite often, the opposite. In fact, uh, Paul says, everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everybody who wants to live a godly life, says Paul. People generally don't want to hear the truth contained in the Bible. Paul says this in Romans 1 about humanity in general. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So we were created to worship the living God. But instead, mankind in general has rejected the truth about who God is and that we were created to live in relationship and to worship him, and instead we've worshipped all sorts of gods of our own creation. Some people worship physical, literal idols. Millions around the world today still actively do that. In Paul's day, that's what was happening in Ephesus. The people there were physically, literally worshipping a physical idol. Perhaps here in the West, most people are. It's it's about worshipping pleasure, or money, or sex, or power, or a relationship, or careers. People worshipping things that have been created rather than worshipping the creator. And part of the role of the church, God's gathered people, is to guard the truth about God, to protect the truth about God, and to spread that truth about God. But that will sometimes make us unpopular because at the heart of the truth about God is the call for people to repent. It's a call for people to turn away from the things they've worshipped and instead to turn to God and accept him. And sinful human beings don't want to do that. And perhaps lots of us here this morning who have accepted that truth can remember times when we were fighting against that truth until we eventually surrendered our lives to Jesus. People generally don't like being challenged to do that because it involves accepting that they've been worshipping the wrong thing and it involves surrendering our lives to God. But it's only when we truly surrender to God and accept the truth about God that we become the people that we were created to be. Jesus said this, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Real freedom is in knowing the truth about God and surrendering to that truth. That's counterintuitive. It's a paradox, isn't it? We think that real freedom is about me being free to live as I want Actually, in the Bible, real freedom comes when we surrender to Jesus and embrace him as our Lord and King. And then we're really truly free and we discover what real freedom is. Until then, we're slaves to sin, Paul says. The Bible says. That's why it's so important that we protect this truth about who God is and how he wants us to live and who Jesus is. That's why it's so important that we protect the truth from attack, that we stand up for the truth because God's glory is at stake and people's eternal destinies are at stake. What people do with the truth about God will affect where they spend eternity. So what is this truth? Well, it's every word of the Bible. It's every word of Jesus. It's what the Bible reveals to us about God. It's what the Bible reveals to us about Jesus. It's what the Bible reveals us uh, to us about ourselves and how it, God wants us to live. It, it, it's all of that. But, for, but, but Paul focuses right in here in this passage on the heart of this truth about God. And it looks like he's quoting from probably what was an early Christian hymn. And this is what he says, "...beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory." Paul says that, the, that, that, that this truth produces true godliness. And we'll look at what he means by that in a moment. But he refers to the truth as mystery. So what on earth does he mean by that? What's Paul on about? Well, the word mystery in the New Testament is is this Greek word mysterion, which in the New Testament always refers, or I think all apart from one occasion, refers to the truth about Jesus or a truth about Jesus that God has revealed to his people. So when you read that word in the New Testament, a mystery, it's not talking about kind of an Agatha Christie book, uh, you know, a murder mystery thing. This is talking about a truth which God has now revealed to his people, usually about Jesus, either the truth of Jesus or something specific about Jesus. It's something we didn't know about Jesus that God has now revealed to us through Jesus or through the Holy Spirit or through the Bible. We had uh, David and Allison around for coffee on uh, Wednesday morning, and we were chatting, just getting to know each other a little bit, and uh, we were saying you know, where we're from and all that kind of thing, and, and without boring you all the details, we discovered that, my grandparents bought Alison's grandparents' house in 1973. What are the odds on that? That's bizarre, isn't it? Something that we didn't know that was revealed to us, and it was like, "Whoa, that's amazing!" My grandparents bought your grandparents' house. That's that's crazy. That's um, yeah, bizarre. But it was a truth that had been hidden, that was now revealed, and that we now uh, know and understand. And I, I was, she was able to phone her family. I was able to phone my mom. and she was like, "Never." You can imagine me mother saying that. Amazing, a truth revealed. And this is kind of what Paul's getting at here, something that has always been true, something that God has now chosen to reveal, mystery and a mystery. And it's a mystery that has been revealed, and it's this mystery, this package of truth, that's what he's talking about, something we didn't know about Jesus that we now do know because God has revealed it to us. So Paul, in other words, is saying this, the truth about Jesus that God has revealed is great, and it produces true godliness And then he goes on to explain what this great truth about Jesus is. This is what he says. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The truth about God, the truth about, uh, or the truth of the Bible is obviously much bigger than just this statement. And there's obviously much more to it. God's truth is everything about him that's been revealed in the Bible. It's everything about us that's revealed in the Bible. It's about how we get right with God through Jesus. It's about how he wants to live. But here, Paul takes all of that and he distills it down just to a little few lines. He says this, a few key facts about Jesus. He says, Jesus appeared in the flesh. He appeared in the flesh. God became a real physical human being, 100% human, just as you and me, except the fact that he never sinned. Jesus God, eternal, became a human being. He stepped into time and took upon himself the form of a human being—really human, every single bit as human as you and I. He he appeared in the flesh. He says, Paul says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. What does he mean by that? Well, it's shorthand, really, for Jesus' whole life, death, and resurrection. That's what he's referring to. You see, Jesus, when he came, claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be sinless. He claimed to be eternal. He claimed that if people believed in him, they could get right with God and they could have eternal life. Now, they were and are massive claims, aren't they? For someone to say, I am God, I've always existed, before Abraham was, I am. And the people he said that to knew exactly what he meant. The Jews took up stones to stone him because they knew he was claiming to be God. And they, want, they put him to death for blasphemy for claiming to be God. "I am God," says Jesus. "I am sinless, I am eternal. And if you want to get right with God, you need to believe in me. and if you believe in me, you can have eternal life. They are enormous claims, massive claims. And if they're not true, then we should have nothing to do with Jesus. If Jesus claimed to be God, if, if Jesus claims to be God, but is in fact not, then he has to be a lunatic. Because nobody claims to be God walking around in human form. No one claims to be eternal. No one claims to be sinless. You'd be a lunatic to claim that. And if he's not God and he's not a lunatic, then he has to be, therefore, a liar. C.S. Lewis, who famously wrote these words, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet. And call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So how do we know that Jesus was and is who he said he was? Well, ultimately because he rose from the dead. If when Jesus died, he stayed dead, then he'd have been proved to be a liar. But because he rose from the dead, he was proved to be who he said he was, because God cannot die. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Jesus was a liar. The whole Christian faith is an utter sham, and we should all just go home and quit being idiots and stupid and turning up here and going through the motions of some crazy religion, because that's what it would be. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it all hangs on the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we need to fall at his feet and worship him as God. If he didn't, let's just go home and do something else with our time, something more useful. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Paul says this in Romans 1 verse 4. Who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ. Christ our Lord. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus back to life and that proved that he was who he said he was. It was the Holy Spirit that vindicated, as Paul says in this passage, or proved Jesus to be right through his resurrection. It was the authenticating stamp, the mark. This is true. He is who he said he was. Otherwise, he'd have stayed dead. And having risen from the dead, it proved that he was God, that he was sinless, that he died in our place, taking the punishment for our sin, and that by doing so, if we believe in him, we can have our sins forgiven. We can be made right with God. We can have eternal life. So Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. That's what Paul is referring to here. And once Jesus has risen from the dead, he ascended back up to heaven and was seen by angels, as Paul says here. In fact, the apostle Peter says this, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The fact that Paul says Jesus was seen by angels is just the Just another way of Paul saying that what Jesus said and did really was true. He could only be seen by angels if he'd risen from the dead. It was angels that were involved in his resurrection. They were there at the empty tomb. And it's angels who now in heaven are in submission to him, worshipping him for all eternity. Along with all those who have trusted in him, who one day worship at his feet. And then Paul says that Jesus was preached among the nations and it was Paul who especially led the way in going to the non-Jewish nations across the Roman Empire to preach about Jesus. He was believed on in the world through Paul's preaching and the preaching of many, many others including people like Timothy and Peter. Tens of thousands of people had trusted in Jesus by the time that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And since Paul's day, 2,000 years later, millions upon millions of Hundreds of millions of people have heard the truth about Jesus from the Bible and have trusted in Jesus. Figures suggest something between 10 and and 20,000 people every day in China alone trust in Jesus. There are more Christians in China than members of the Communist Party, which is why the Communist Party is so terrified of the church, why it's bulldozing churches and arresting Christians. Millions of people have heard the truth and have accepted that truth, and have come to know Jesus. And Paul closes the statement of truth by saying that Jesus was taken up in glory, which is a reference to his ascension to heaven, that he's now at God's right hand. And from there will come again to take us, those of us who've trusted in him, to be with him. That is the truth of the Bible in a few short statements. That's the truth that we as the church, God's gathered people, God's household, have been entrusted with. What people do with that truth determines where they spend eternity. If people accept Jesus and worship God, they receive eternal life. But if they reject Jesus and worship created things instead of the creator, then God will reject them. They'll be separated from God and from all that is good in what the Bible calls hell. That's why this truth is so important. That's why it's so important that we defend it, that we understand it, that we know it. That we keep on spreading it. And the fantastic thing is this. That when, that when people accept this truth. They become part of God's household. They become part of the church of the living God. Part of God's gathered people. So how can we belong to the church of the living God? Well it's by accepting and believing the truth. That God has revealed about Jesus. The way in which we become part of God's gathered people. Is to accept this amazing truth. And to believe this truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. This truth that God has revealed, this mystery that has now been revealed to us. The way we become part of God's household, God's gathered people, God's families, by believing in Jesus and surrendering our lives to him. And Paul says this, that the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. In other words, it's when people accept this great truth, this mystery, this truth that's been revealed, it's when we accept this great revealed truth that we can be changed and that we can have the power and the desire to start living lives that are godly. True godliness comes from encountering and accepting the truth about Jesus. And so write this down. Godliness is a life that is orientated towards God. It's a life that is God-facing. And it's a life that seeks to please him. That's what it means to be godly. Someone is a godly person. It means they are God-orientated. They are focused on God. They're living to please him. That's what true godliness is. And when we accept the truth about Jesus that God has revealed, then we will want to, or we should want to, start living a life that is God-focused, that is God-orientated, that is pleasing to him. And if we're living a godly life, a life that's god oriented a life that's focused on pleasing him, then we'll want to conduct ourselves properly in God's household. It's not that we get to be part of God's household by being godly or behaving the right way. We don't become part of God's family by behaving our way into this family. We get to be part of God's family by surrendering to Jesus and accepting that great truth. And having accepted it, then our behavior changes and we become different people. We start to live godly lives in response to who God is and in response to what God has done. Which brings us back to close at verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. If we've joined God's household, if we've joined the church of the living God, then it's important that we know that we should conduct ourselves properly. We're the living God, gathered people of the living God. Whether we're gathered here on a Sunday or whether we're dispersed throughout the week at school or at work or in the home, we're not just the church of the living God when we're gathered together. We continue to be the church of the living God wherever we are if we've become part of it. And how we conduct ourselves both when we gather but also when we're dispersed is really important. It's important that the way that we gather and function as a local church is correct. Much of this letter from Paul to Timothy is about how a local church should function, how it should be uh, governed, how it should be led and what it should do. And it's important that we take the New Testament really seriously and as much as we're able to do with the 2,000-year gap of culture and so on, that we, that we build our church and we model it upon New Testament practice and New Testament teaching. But we're not just the church of the living God when we're here on a Sunday. We're also the church of the living God on a Monday and on a Tuesday and on a Wednesday and so on. And so how we conduct ourselves... As members of God's church, of the church of the living God, how we conduct ourselves throughout the week is equally important. How we conduct ourselves when no one else is looking, or when we're at work, or whatever other situation we're in, that is important. We've heard a lot about the British ambassador, haven't we, to the US this last week. But the Bible describes us as God's ambassadors. We are the ambassadors of the living God. We're his representatives in a lost world. And how we behave and conduct ourselves speaks volumes to those around us. It speaks volumes about the living God, who we gather to, and it speaks volumes about our church. How I behave on Wednesday when I'm driving down the A1 or whenever represents and reflects on the rest of you. How you behave at work on Friday reflects on me, reflects on everybody else. We are God's ambassadors and ultimately it reflects on Jesus. How we view church will determine how we behave towards our church and how we behave towards those people in our church and those outside of our church. If we just think of this as a nice Christian club, we've completely missed the point. We are the gathered people of the living God whose job, in part, it is to protect and guard and spread the truth. Paul says this in Ephesians, Christ loved the church And gave himself up for her to make her holy. Christ loved the the people that have gathered to him. And gave himself up for them to make them holy. And to present her to himself as a radiant church. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. Jesus loved the church. Christ loved the church. And God wants us to love the church in the same way that Jesus does. We should value church. We should value the church. We should value our church. We should value our fellow brothers and sisters in our church and in other churches because Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. You know, if you've accepted the truth of God that he's revealed in the Bible, then you are part of the church of the living God. You're God's gathered people. What a privilege to be a part of something so important. Something so special. Do you get that sense this morning of what a privilege it is? Not because of anything we've done, but all because of Jesus, that we get to be part of this thing, this thing called church. It's phenomenal privilege. We're here on holy ground, not physical holy ground, but spiritual holy ground. So let's treasure it. Let's value church. Let's value our church. Let's value the church. Let's value one another. And if you haven't yet accepted the truth about God that he's revealed in the Bible, can I challenge you to take that step and surrender your life today to Jesus so that you no longer worship created things, but you worship the creator. Let's just take a few moments just to bow our heads, close our eyes, perhaps, just pause and reflect on what God has been saying to us this morning. And what he's perhaps been saying to you will be different from what he said to me this week as I've studied this. It will be different to the person next to you. But the Holy Spirit no doubt has been speaking this morning through his word. And so let's just stop and pause and just hear what God is saying to us. And if God is speaking to you this morning about anything or about something completely different, then can I encourage you to respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning. Father, we thank you for this wonderful, phenomenal package of truth, this great mystery that you've revealed to us about Jesus. Thank you that you, the eternal God, became flesh and made your dwelling among us. Thank you that we can enter into relationship with you through the Lord Jesus, the one who became flesh, the one who became sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died in our place so that we could have forgiveness and we could be right in God's eyes. Help us, each one of us, to embrace that truth and the much wider truth about who you are and all that you require of us. Help us to surrender, not just that one-off surrender, but that daily surrender of knowing the truth and living in that freedom no longer as slaves to sin, but as slaves to Jesus, as slaves to righteousness, where there is real freedom, Help us to value each other, help us to value church, help us to value your people, help us to value and love all people, that we might spread the truth, your truth, the truth of who you are. Bless us, we pray, give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen.